Do you ever feel like someone is watching you? I remember during the COVID um, time, kind of at the beginning when masks weren't available, I was driving my wife's car and I was going to Starbucks to work on my sermon. And I got to Starbucks and realized they didn't have a mask. And they didn't have extras back then. We couldn't buy them. But I remembered my wife had an extra mask she always kept in her car. And I pulled it out and I remembered it was hot pink. <laughs> with lime green straps she had made. I was very aware that people were probably watching me as I went in. But do you ever feel like someone's watching you? Maybe in a little less uh, obvious environment. Maybe you're at Winco and you're checking out and putting your food on the line and you feel like, are people watching me about what I'm buying? Did I get enough vegetables or things like that? Maybe you're at Starbucks. You ever feel like someone's watching you? Are you buying one of the foo-foo frappuccinos or are you getting the tough, rugged, black coffee? Or maybe you bring a cake to a party and you feel like some people are evaluating your cake. Did that come out of a box? Or did you make that from scratch? I must have been hungry when I prepared this Thursday because those are all food <laughs> illustrations. But you ever feel like people are watching you? And the truth is that people are watching us as believers. Did you know that? Your non-Christian friends, your non-believing friends, they watch you. When you go out to lunch, they look at your receipt to see how much you tipped that waiter or waitress. People that you fly on the airplane with watch to see how you treat those flight attendants. When people get in your car, they pay attention to how you drive and if you obey the speed limits or how you treat other drivers. People watch you and how you interact with your husband or wife, or how you discipline your kids, or how you use your time while you are at work. We're here in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John. Some of these last words that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, often described as being in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is in those intimate moments we see here in the Gospel of John, just with his 11 disciples, privately with them. It's some of the last moments before Jesus' birth, this is or Jesus' death. This is Thursday night before Jesus is going to be crucified and killed on Friday. And there are also some moving moments. Starting in chapter 13, Jesus starts to talk to the disciples in the upper room. Then at the end of chapter 14, he says, let's get up and go from here. So there's some sense of maybe he's talking with them as they're getting their stuff to move. Or maybe even he's sharing these things while they're walking to the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. Because in chapter 18, they arrive in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Jesus is telling these disciples is that help is on the way. And that people are going to be coming to faith through them and their ministry. And that hope that's on the way is going to be the Holy Spirit that comes to them. So in our time together, we'll look at how the Holy Spirit is going to come after Jesus leaves. The Holy Spirit arrives after Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world through the church and the Holy Spirit is going to illuminate the truth, the church, to God's church. And we pick up Jesus' words in chapter 16, verse 5, where it says, But now I am going to him who sent me, 
and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. <clears throat> but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here in verse 5, Jesus is describing how he's going to be leaving these disciples. And then in verse 6, we see the feeling of those disciples, that sorrow has filled their hearts. And sorrow has filled their hearts probably for two reasons. One is personal. Jesus has been their friend. He has been their leader, and he has been with them for three years. They're sad to hear that their friend and leader is going to be leaving them. That's the personal reason. But there also is a political reason, because they, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, that he was going to be the king. And if Jesus is the king, then they would get to be in a good spot to be kind of the first guys to be jumping onto the king and his program. But these disciples are so preoccupied with Jesus leaving that it causes sorrow to come in their hearts, and they're sad. They don't have any questions about where he's going. Even Thomas, that always seemed to have a question, even Thomas doesn't ask any questions. And that sorrow is understandable. See, up until this point in time in that upper room, <clears throat> Jesus had predicted the betrayal of one of the disciples, Jesus. Jesus had told them that he was going to be leaving them. Jesus had predicted that Peter, in the room with them, would deny Jesus three times. And lastly, Jesus predicted that 11, those 11 disciples would endure hate, persecution, and be killed because of their faith. No wonder they were sorrowful. No wonder they were a little confused and their thoughts were scrambled. But Jesus tells them that reason that he's leaving in verse 7. He says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what's going to happen? Jesus is going to leave. Why? So that the Holy Spirit will come. And notice there about middle, midway through the verse kind of more towards the front side of the middle, I guess. Notice it says, it is to your advantage that I go away. The NIV translation says, it is for your good that I go away. Another way to translate that word would be profitable or beneficial. It was good that Jesus was going away. It's the same word that the high priest Caiaphas had spoken in John 11:50. When he spoke a prophecy that he didn't really realize he was saying, he spoke a prophecy saying, it was expedient that one man would need to die for the nation. It was good that one guy die for the nation. Leon Morris in his commentary on this verse, who I've been reading as we've been going through this throughout our time in John, I probably don't give him as much credit as I should for good thoughts he gives me for the messages, but he says, we may profitably reflect that this is the supreme illustration of the way God uses the acts of the wicked people to accomplish his purpose. 
See, what the disciples thought was going to be a disaster in Jesus dying was actually going to be good for them, for God's people, and for the world. See, God sometimes allows evil and wickedness to occur in order for his agenda to be accomplished. And that's what Jesus is telling them here. And part of Jesus' agenda was the atonement, that he needed to die for the people. He needed to atone for their sins. Another part of his agenda was that he had another helper, the Holy Spirit, that was going to come to be with them. And that spirit could only come if he leaves. And a third part of his agenda was that there would be someone always available to them. See, Jesus, when he was on earth, he was limited through a physical body. He couldn't be in two places at once. But the Holy Spirit, being God, will indwell every single believer and be with them simultaneously. See, what we see happening here is that Jesus does things that are going to hurt, but they are necessary. Jesus does things that are going to hurt, but they're necessary. We can almost sense some of these disciples feeling these things in their hearts. Like, Jesus, why would you leave us? Jesus, why would you allow us to go through difficult times? Jesus, don't you love us? Why would you allow this to happen to us? Jesus, what are we going to do without you? But Jesus leaves so that the Holy Spirit will come. There are going to be tough times between the arrest of Jesus and his ascension to heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But those tough times were necessary to get the disciples ready, to prepare them to do the ministry he had planned for them. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, they were ready. In Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come and this guy that had failed over and over and over named Peter, it says he stepped forward and he preached the first sermon and 3,000 people got saved in that one day. Jesus did these things to get them ready even though they caused hurt to the disciples. And likewise, God allows us too sometimes to go through tough times because there is a future ministry or a future job or a future family or family member he has planned and prepared for us. But he has to get us ready. And sometimes that means we have to endure some hurt along the way. So the Holy Spirit, he arrives after Jesus leaves, is what he's telling these disciples. <clears throat> and when that Holy Spirit comes, he is going to convict the world of sin. Jesus describes the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 8 here. He says, and when he, that's the Holy Spirit, and when he <clears throat> comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now there's a little word, two, two words in verse 7 you might have noticed that I want to point out for you that relate to the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 8. About midway through verse 7 it says, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, talking to the disciples. But if I go, I will send him, which is the Helper, to you. So Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to the disciples, and it is through the disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to work to convict the world of 
sin. The Holy Spirit's not a force that kind of wanders around like a radio wave looking for an unbeliever to convict of sin. He works inside of us to convict the world of sin. He's not an auxiliary to the church. He's in the church bringing the world under conviction through the ministry of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, <clears throat> it's talking about purity, but it says, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, from whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit, he lives inside of us, and he works through us to convict the world of sin. In other words, you and I as believers, we're an open book. We're kind of an open letter where people get to see what we do and how we act. And that's one of the ways that they are convicted of the sin they have in their lives. <clears throat> see, that Holy Spirit, he comes to the church. He lives in the church. And in the church, he goes to the world. He's called the parakletos in our passage, the helper that we've talked about the last few weeks. It's from an old word called parakaleo, used to describe a legal assistant or an advocate, a pleader, one who leads another's cause. And that sense is used here to describe how the Holy Spirit kind of acts like a persecutor seeking a conviction of unbelievers. And that conviction is introduced there in verse 8. You might have seen those three topics introduced by Jesus. And then he expands on each of those three topics in the next three verses. So the coming of the Holy Spirit is described in verse 8, and then the conviction of the Holy Spirit is in verses 9 through 11, where it says in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. See, sin means to miss the mark, to lie, cheat, steal, have excessive anger that's not grounded in anything. That's what it means to sin. But Jesus provided a way for that sin to be forgiven. He uses the church to show people their sins and help them realize their need for a Savior. But belief is required for that sin to go away. So the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads to people's guilt. The Holy Spirit also convicts people regarding righteousness. In verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Because we are sinful from birth, we need a Savior. And that righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. That righteousness describes people's helplessness. Because Jesus is righteous, we are helpless and we need him. <clears throat> then in verse 11, judgment. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The result of sin and not accepting the righteousness of Jesus leads to judgment. That describes people's destiny. So what Jesus is saying here is that when he sends the Holy Spirit to us, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us to convict the world of sin. 
There are a lot of churches out there that they try to be, this is the term used, but I'm not sure if it's the best term. They try to be sometimes seeker sensitive is the term churches sometimes describe. And it's a way of some churches saying they don't want to offend people that come to church that maybe aren't a believer. So as a result, they don't talk about sin. They don't describe hell. They'll never talk about money because that would offend people to ask for their money. Some of them don't have a cross on the stage or anywhere because that might be offensive. And some don't even talk about the Bible because they're afraid if you hold up a Bible that might offend people for describing truth. Right? They're, so, they're very worried about offending people, but if you don't do some of those things, you can never convict people of sin. So how does the church allow the Holy Spirit to convict others of sin? One is through preaching the word. Just like we do at church, we usually read scripture together and look at it. Last month we started a, a community newsletter where we sent out a newsletter to the 120 uh, houses right around our church as a way to let people know what our church is doing, to advertise our harvest party and our good news club. And inside that first newsletter we concluded a little pamphlet just in case someone wanted to read it, that was titled Historical Evidence for the Death and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. A little pamphlet that outlines what other people that lived around the time of Jesus said about his death and resurrection. As a way to hopefully convict people, Jesus was real. He lived, and you got to figure out what you think about him, whether you accept him or reject him. That's one way we preach the word. Another one may be for you as you're approaching the Christmas season. Maybe you make sure that you have some Christmas cards that have scripture on it to remind people what Christmas is about. So the church lets the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin by preaching the word, but also by practicing the word. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ and you participate in believer's baptism, that's one of the great ways to convict the world of sin. Because if you have family members or people that aren't Christians that invite, they see you go in that water and you get dunked and come up and it's kind of awkward because you're all wet. It's a pretty powerful witness to other people that this is something going on in my friend or family member's heart. I better check this out or I need to ask them what this all is about. Or maybe it's honesty in the workplace. You're just a regular employee and you go to work and you show up on time, you work while you're there and don't do things on your phone, you say nice things to your coworker, you stay out of trouble and you leave on time. You're like the cream of the crop, nowadays at least, if you do just those basic things. And that's practicing the word. You're being obedient to your bosses. You're working hard and things like that. It makes you look different. Or maybe it might be compassion in the workplace. If you're a boss or a manager, it's easy just to kind of value profit over people if you're working in the workplace, to value results over priorities. But if you're a boss and a manager and it's a Friday and someone says something about doing something with their kids on the weekend and you remember on Monday to ask them, they're going to think something's kind of different about you as a manager. He cares about people that he doesn't really have to care about or she care about. So Jesus describes how the Holy Spirit, he convicts 
the world through the church. And then he moves on in these last few verses describe how the Holy Spirit illuminates the church in truth. Verse 12 is kind of a transition verse there. It says, <clears throat> Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Like any good teacher, Jesus isn't going to give them more than they can handle, and their cup is kind of full right now. So he describes the future ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to come. First, how the Holy Spirit is going to guide those disciples in verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. So this is the promise of the Holy Spirit to the disciples, that they'll be given spiritual understanding about what's going to happen in the near future. They might not understand why Jesus is going to die, or how he comes back from the dead, or what the meaning of his ascension to heaven is. But the, in the future, the Holy Spirit will help them interpret those things, figure out what they mean, and help them know how to apply it to themselves and share it with others. <clears throat> And the New Testament we have is the fulfillment of that. Matthew through Revelation, those 27 books written by nine different authors through a period of about 45 years are a result of the Holy Spirit showing those guys, maybe a gal for Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but those guys and maybe a lady, what the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and future return is. So the Holy Spirit, he guides the disciples, but he also glorifies the Christ in verse 14. He says, he, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So the Holy Spirit's going to take everything about Jesus and reveal who Jesus was, what he did, and what it meant to these believers. And again, that's what's contained in Scripture. We have a Bible that's made up of 66 books that's given to us, and it's contained. There's no new books of Scripture being written, no new revelations that people are writing down and giving to us to add to our Bible. That's already been disclosed by Jesus. And that's one of the signs of a cult. If someone is describing new revelations they're getting from God, and passing those on as equal or almost equal to Scripture. There's some folks in what's called the Baha'i faith. Are you familiar with the Baha'i faith? It's not that common. I was familiar when I had it on my notes on a certain page. There it is. The Baha'i faith is a people that use these verses here in John chapter 16 verses 12 through 14 to describe how their prophet was a fulfillment of what Jesus said. <clears throat> See the Baha'i faith believes that each age of humanity needs an updated revelation from God and Jesus he was one of many religious prophets. Abraham, Moses, Zoroaster, Guatama, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad from Islam, 
the Bab and the Baha'u'llah were all different prophets God has given, <clears throat> according to them. And according to them, Jesus communicated revelation from God for that age. So Jesus here, he's teaching truths for the people then. But according to the Baha'i faith people, there's going to be a future revelation, which they claimed was in the 1800s by a guy named Bob, and then another one, Baha'u'llah, <clears throat> that were a fulfillment of this passage. And I share that with you for a couple reasons. One, I want you to be aware of doctrinal differences of people that sometimes live in our community or that we know. There's even a Baha'i assembly that meets here in Moses Lake. So I want you to be aware of the doctrinal differences that sometimes those folks have. For example, they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They say this isn't describing the Holy Spirit. This is describing the Bob 1,800 years later. They'll talk about Jesus and refer to Jesus and say, oh, he was God, but he was one of those prophets, very different than us that say he was fully God, fully man, part of the Trinity. Jesus was just one of those seven prophets communicating for people in that age, not for eternity. So I want us to be aware of some of those doctrinal differences, but I also want us to be cautious because sometimes they'll invite us to be part of their things they do or potlucks, and it's okay for us to decline. It's okay for us to say no. Sometimes they'll invite us to partner with them in ministry, and it's okay for us to kindly and gently decline those invitations because there are differences specifically to how they interpret passages just like this one here. So the Holy Spirit, he guides the disciples, he glorifies the, the Christ, and he harmonizes with the Trinity, that last verse in verse 15. All things that the Father has are mine. There are four I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. <clears throat> There's no division in the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there are three distinct persons, one divine essence. And what Jesus is describing here in verses 12 through 15 is the doctrine of illumination that the church enjoys. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit helping believers to understand the truth of Scripture. Illumination is not direct revelation or additional books that we write to our Bible. It's not just facts and knowledge. And it's not for the unbelievers because they're not saved and don't know God's word. But illumination is for us as believers where we understand those facts and knowledge and the meaning that leads to Christ-likeness. Through our study of God's word and our meditation on it, it leads to us acting differently and being people that look different than the world. See, the Holy Spirit, he lives inside of us, and he will show us what things mean and how to apply them. <clears throat> As we wrap up that third point there, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to guide the church away from sin and into a deep relationship with him. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to the church to guide them away from sin and into a deep relationship with him. 
And that means a few things. One, the Holy Spirit would not speak something different than the Father or the Son. Have you caught that throughout the passage? The Holy Spirit's going to only reveal what's in the Father and the Son then. <clears throat> Second, it means the Holy Spirit won't speak different than Scripture for us today. That's important for you and I as we interact with people. The Holy Spirit's not going to speak to someone and tell them to do something that's contrary to God's Word. Right? If a guy says, well, I think God wants me to be happy, and I heard him tell me, uh, this woman is better for me, so I'm going to leave my wife and kids. Right? We wouldn't accept that. We know that's not true. <laughs> God's not going to say things that are different than are in his word. The Seattle Seahawks might be on the one-yard line of the Super Bowl playing against the New England Patriots. They're one yard away, and you think God says, I'm going to put all my money that they're going to score a touchdown because I know they're going to give the ball to Lynch, and he's going to run in there, right? You guys are like totally asleep. <laughs> no. Russell Wilson throws it, and it goes to an interception, and they lose. Very different. The grass isn't always greener on the other side, if you, if you follow sports at all. <clears throat> See, God won't speak different than his word. The Holy Spirit's not going to tell you or me to do something that is contrary to his word. Just as the Holy Spirit's not going to say something contrary to what the Father or Son says. And three, the Holy Spirit will show us the meaning of Scripture and how it relates to our world and the circumstances we're in. I want to close with a story that relates to that last point about how the Holy Spirit shows us <clears throat> how we apply Scripture based on the situations we're in. Amber Geiger, Amber was a woman that had just finished a 13-hour shift working one night and she lived in a, part, a nice apartment complex where you parked on the level that you lived on. So if you lived on the fourth floor, you would follow the parking garage up, park on the fourth floor, and walk to your apartment. If you lived on the second floor, you'd park on the second floor and walk. So after a 13-hour shift, she had lived on the third floor, but she accidentally drove up to the fourth floor, parked her car, walked to her door, and as she goes to what she thought was her apartment, it was actually someone else's apartment because she was on the wrong floor. She goes to open the door and she realizes it's unlocked. Gets a little fearful when she discovers a man in her apartment. And what eventually happened was the man lost his life because of some things she did in that circumstance. And at her trial years ago, it was pretty clear she was going to be convicted of murder and sentenced to prison. And they let the family members say a few words at the end of the trial. I don't know how this works or at what point in the trial. But the younger brother of that man that lost his life was given a time to share his words with the woman that killed his brother. And the young man said this to her. He said, I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that, but I just, I hope you go to God with all the guilt, all the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we were not supposed to do. 
If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could sit, again, I'm speaking for myself, not even on behalf of my family, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say, I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did. But I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone. But I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you, because that's exactly what my brother would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else, but I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that my brother would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible. And he turns to the judge, and he says, Can I give her a hug? And the judge let him give a hug to the woman that killed his brother. Millions of people saw that testimony. When I Googled it this week, because it's been several years, it was on CNN and ABC, where he got to share the gospel about love and forgiveness with a lot of people. He didn't have to do that, and he was the only one in his family that said those things and wanted that desire. His mom and his sister were very public. They wanted more justice than was administered. That woman, Amber, is currently serving a 10-year prison sentence for murder. But what a powerful testimony of what the Holy Spirit does when he indwells and controls Christians. How a young man could forgive someone that made such a bad mistake. It was uncharacteristic for him to do that. But it was convincing to many people that watch that also have hate and hurt in their lives. And it was an invitation to others to come to Jesus and ask for their personal sins to be forgiven too. And I share that with you because people are watching us. They're watching you and they're watching me. And I hope that through the Holy Spirit living in us and indwelling us and illuminating us, we're allowed, we let him convict the world of sin. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that tells us how to live in the different circumstances we're in with the difficulties and troubles and heartbreak and sadness we have. Jesus told those disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit to help them and be with them. And we too enjoy that promise that the Holy Spirit lives in us and illuminates us to your truth. He'll show us scripture that relates to our circumstances. He'll remind us of God's word at times when we need it the most. And if anyone here hasn't accepted that invitation to place their faith in you, I pray your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins and that they would place their faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.